Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to everybody. So glad. These are the real Jesus followers today, right? <laughs> if you were here, you're really a follower of Jesus. And a lot of y'all were here last night. We had uh, over 450 last night in both services. It was fantastic, beautiful services. So grateful for all the different people who made that happen and who have participated and our praise team and singers and everybody who um, was a part of this and practiced and uh, made these two services, two days of services, just really wonderful. So thank you so much. Well, did anybody get a present either so far for Christmas or maybe that you opened up this morning where someone said, you can open this today, but you can't use it for 30 years? Anybody? Anybody get that? I didn't think so. That's kind of an odd thing. I'll come back to that later as we think about what was next for, May, uh, for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus as they try to move forward in this new life of theirs. What a night um, and the birth of Jesus they had just experienced, if you think about it. So what time was Jesus born? We always assume it was at night, right? And it probably was. Uh, and Jesus, on our experience, such as teachings and readings and all that kind of things, and we assume it was on Christmas Day, December 25th, right? And y'all do know that that's probably not true. There's a lot of historians over the years that have talked about that and why it was or wasn't, and probably wasn't on actually December 25th because of calendars and cultures and all these different things. But we do... And we had to say, hey, but we're going to celebrate Jesus' birth on this one day. And so that's what we do. That's the important thing, right? That we celebrate Jesus' birth. And there's a lot of speculation on, on when he was actually born. But it seemed like it was at night. And Mary and Joseph had, as we know, had traveled from Bethlehem to Nazareth, which if you weren't pregnant, it was probably about a three-day uh, journey. But if you were pregnant, you probably had a lot of stops. It probably was a lot slower than that, and it was probably a lot longer. They probably arrived late in the evening, and as we read in the Bible, there was no room for them in the inn. That's all it tells us. There was no innkeeper that we know of. We kind of read into a lot of those kind of things. But there was no room, and after their experience with the birth of Jesus and then the visit from the shepherds, you wonder how much sleep, if any, did they get? on that Christmas Eve night. If the scene where they stayed overnight was anything like we put in our little manger scenes with horses and cows and goats, there were probably chickens. And if you've ever had chickens, they wake up really early. And roosters make a lot of racket in the morning. So I can imagine maybe they were awoken by a rooster from their exhaustive state. And there was no breakfast in bed probably for Mary. There was no nurse to come in and check and see if her and the baby were okay and change the baby for her and ask if there was anything she could get for Mary and Joseph. There was no nearby Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts for Joseph to make a run to get coffee for Mary or donuts for them. There was the stark reality that all that had happened last night was not a dream, it was reality. They were still in that crude shelter where they were last night, the baby still in the feed trough, although warm probably and snuggled up in that straw and in those swaddling clothes. But this was not a dream. Mary and Joseph were still in a state of awe 
thinking about the shepherds that had come and told them the things that they had seen, that the heavenly host came and told them exactly where the baby was and where Mary and Joseph were. So what now? Where do they go from here? Well, how about we just take a nice walk through Bethlehem and go see all the Christmas lights and see what everybody got for Christmas. Oh, wait a minute, that hasn't happened yet. There are no Christmas lights, and none of that is a reality. The reality was that Mary and Joseph were not in Bethlehem for a Christmas celebration, were they? Matter of fact, they weren't in Bethlehem for any kind of celebration at all. They were there because they had to register. It was required for them to register and pay taxes. Baby or not, convenient or not, shelter or not, you better be there and you better register. Other people in Bethlehem had not come for a festival or a holiday event either. They had been ordered to register just like Mary and Joseph and pay their taxes. And it was all done by the enemy occupier, Rome, by Caesar Augustus. He called out this census, if you will. And just recently, he had been called himself Savior of the world. Think about that. And this occupying world power and ruler continued to disrupt and control the lives of all those that lived in Jerusalem and beyond. So this was not really a happy time. Joseph, as a carpenter by trade, was missing the opportunity for work probably back home, wasn't he? He had a lot of work to do, but he had to stop and go and travel on this trip to register. And this journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem was probably quite an expense, even before taxes. And now he had Mary and a baby, and not just any baby, but the Messiah, the true Savior of the world. Now, it's a lot of responsibility to have a baby, isn't it? to have kids, but when you're told this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, how do you handle that every day? You know, I mean, that's a, that's a lot for parents, a lot of responsibility. But the reality is, is that now they had to go and stand in a line somewhere, like we might think of the DMV or something, amidst other travelers, and they would have to wait their turn to register. And it wasn't just Joseph. Mary had to be accounted for with him, and of course the baby. Rome was very intentional about planning for the future of their empire. They wanted to know where people were, where they lived. It was important to them. They needed to know all this to project the future population, the future growth of what was going to happen in the empire. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Jewish men were exempt from the Roman military service because of their religious beliefs. But they still had to register and they still had to pay taxes. Rome may not want to use these men necessarily in their military, but they would keep a watchful eye on those who had the ability to maybe start a rebellion at some point. They wanted to know who was out there and where they were always. But there was something more that Rome and Caesar and Herod were concerned about with this whole registration. And that was personal power. And their loss of it. These powerful men, as you know, all rose to power through, guess what? Somebody else got killed so that they could have the throne. That's kind of the way it was in this world. So when you rise to power knowing that you had somebody killed so that you could be on the throne, you're kind of always watching your back, aren't you? Because you realize that could happen to me. There's a systematic, if not paranoid, watching of your back always. Who's after me? Who's trying to get some authority that's around me? Who wants my throne and my power? 
Well, I want to share with you an article uh, that was shared with me this week, and it was interesting. And some of this you may know, but you understand that both Mary and Joseph genealogies were out of the line of David. And I know that they knew that, but it's interesting as we find out that the rest of the world was at least semi-aware of this and was wondering about this Messiah. Even though they may not have known and been thinking about it at the time, all of a sudden, they know from all these years of prophecies that these things were coming. So both Joseph, I want to read you some of this article. Both Joseph and Mary's genealogies were out of the line of Judah. Joseph's ancestry can be found in the royal genealogy that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew, directly through King David. Bethlehem, the city of David, was the place where Roman magistrates had located themselves to receive those who were of the tribe of Judah. In the legal genealogy of Jesus found in Luke, we find that Mary also traces through the house of David. This mandate from Caesar Augustus declaring the entire empire was forced to register at designated locations was centered less on taxation and more on identification. So concerning the word tax, in verse 1 of Luke's account, W.E. Vine in the expository dictionary of the New Testament words explains that it is translated from the Greek word apographo, which means to write out, to enroll, inscribe, and to register. So you see what they're saying here is Bethlehem, they were aware of this ancient prophecy that there was going to be a king that would come out of Judah and that would be born in Bethlehem. Even Rome knew this and at least had an awareness of it. So they wanted to track who everybody was because somebody may claim to be this new king. And they were aware of that. Again, paranoid. Who else is a king? Caesar is the only king. So this mandate... Uh, um, so in other words, this census was Caesar's way of ensuring that no pretender to any local throne could materialize or claim a following among the Jews which could be raised to claim a regal authority against Rome. For the Romans, such a threat would, would deserve immediate execution and which Herod eventually attempted. In the book called The Star That Astonished the World, Ernest L. Martin acknowledges a reference made by ancient Jewish historian Josephus. A lot of y'all may recognize that name. Besides the ancient words of the Bible that are history, there were also other folks that wrote during that era. And Josephus is one who wrote specifically on the, um, the different history of, of Israel. And so he wrote this, The oath of loyalty mentioned by Josephus is what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Then it makes sense why Mary had to accompany Joseph. In a regular census, Mary would not have needed to go with Joseph, nor would Joseph have needed to travel so far. Some have suspected that since both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David and were legitimate claimants of the throne of Israel, had such a throne existed, it could easily be seen why Mary, as well as Joseph, was expected to sign the oath of loyalty to, uh, to Augustus. All royal claimants would especially have to be singled out to give this oath of allegiance. Taxation was certainly on the Roman agenda, but the control of the empire was its chief concern. This taxation was really a registration intended to track any and all citizens of the empire who might have claim to some rulership through family lineage. The royal lineage of David presented a threat to Rome and to Herod. So, kind of interesting, isn't it? So, Mary and Joseph, uh, not only did they have to register, but they were basically signing, saying, we're not going to be a threat to Augustus and his throne. Now, Mary and Joseph might have thought, 
Did they know that they were of the line of David? I'm sure they did, but did they really think that Jesus was going to be this king? And so as they go to register, you've got to think what's going through their mind. Do they know who we really are? Do they know that the Son of God, the Messiah, really has just been born to us? Do they know that? Does Rome know that? Then they know they've been registered. But it seems like they haven't really figured it out yet. So you can understand when the wise men show up in Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews who's just been born, Herod is paranoid and he goes, what baby that's just been born that's a king? He's paranoid of this. Although he knows there's one coming, he hasn't really thought about it. So before we look at our text today, keep in mind the wise men we know have shown up probably several months later, if not maybe even a couple of years later. Mary and Joseph, we read in Luke, had already gone through the proper Mosaic laws. They went in after eight days and they circumcised Jesus. And Joseph had to do this by himself because Mary couldn't go to the temple till 40 days after birth. And then after those 40 days, Mary and Joseph both went back to the temple in Jerusalem, which would have been about six miles from Jerusalem, I mean from Bethlehem. And they dedicated Jesus. And we can read about that in Luke's gospel where Simeon and Anna both come and say, we know who that baby is. God has told us, the Holy Spirit has told us, this is the Messiah. And they give Mary and Joseph more um, confirmation that this baby is indeed God's chosen one. So our text we're going to read from today is from Matthew's gospel. And it's the only gospel account where we find about the Magi or the wise men. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And that's going to be up there. Thank you. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now, that may be a familiar text to you. We, we know that's kind of how it went. But there's some things we pull out of that that are not necessarily true. So how many, at your manger scene, how many wise men do you have? Three, right? Was there three? Well, Scripture doesn't say there were three. They just says there were three gifts. So we assume because there were three gifts that there was three men. It could have been way more than that. It could have just been a couple. But we know it was obviously more than two or three, probably, as, as they came. But we always assumed there was three. And I shared a couple of weeks back that these men, along with many in the East, they know the claims of the Jews. 
they have heard these prophecies for years. They know the scriptures. They've read the Jewish scriptures. And they know about this history of this coming of this Messiah and King. And although there's been a long period of silence, they still know the Jews believe this and are looking and anticipating this Messiah that's coming. Their cultural background is probably from Babylon and Persia, but it's been intertwined with Israel for years and years and years. So they know about this Messiah and Savior that has long been predicted. There's a a quote from a guy, and this is a really hard name, so forgive me, whoever this guy is. His name is Vinith Ramachandra. He says, the pagan magi turned out to be servants of Israel's God and are led to recognize the true king of Israel, while Israel's ruler, Herod, is worse than any pagan tyrant. And we know that to be true. However, God chose to reveal somehow to these wise men that that in faith they made this incredible journey all the way to Bethlehem to follow this special star. Now, we don't know exactly what this star looks like. We assume it was a star like that, a star we see in the sky. And we have, there's also a lot of speculation, a lot of um, really interesting historical stuff that you can read about about that star and from the different countries and how they came to find it and all that. But it is very possible that this star was something like the Israelites followed in the Old Testament. You remember when God had this, like a ball of fire that would lead them at night, and they followed this, and it seemed to stop wherever the wise men did and kept going to show them where it was. But whatever it was, it led them right to Jesus. And you probably read in Matthew's account there, it stopped at a house, right? So they weren't in the manger anymore. They were at a house at this point. Was it family members? We don't know. Did they stay? They obviously stayed for several months after Jesus was born. But naturally, they came to Jerusalem, to the capital, to find this newborn king. And they were probably surprised that Herod says, what king? What are you talking about? Now, we know that Herod was not actually Jewish. So Herod had to have a meeting with the priests. And notice he asked, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? It kind of kicks in. Yeah, I've, I've heard of these things, but where was he supposed to be born? And they tell him. They know. They know the scriptures. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And Herod has a history of squelching any sign of rebellion or grasping of authority. We know that he killed several of his own wives and even his own sons. Even Caesar Augustus said this about him. It's safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. So Herod has a history of this. And although he was inside disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, this had slipped by him. For he asked for a private meeting with the Magi. And then he tells them, go back to Bethlehem. And I just told you that Bethlehem's only six miles away. Why would Herod not go on his own? Why would he not take some of his own men and go there and look for the baby himself? But he tells the Magi, go and find him and then report back to me so I can come and worship him. And we know that wasn't true. But these wise men are not deterred by Herod's ignorance of this baby being born or of his significance. They continue their journey and follow the star until it stops over the place where the baby was. And Matthew continues, And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On the coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And this is where the whole idea, I assume, of giving gifts at Christmas comes from, because Jesus received gifts, right? That's where it all started. The gifts were brought for Jesus, the newborn Messiah, and the king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold 
is a gift for a king, and we must always meet Jesus in complete submission to him. Frankincense is the gift of a priest who opens the way for God. You remember they would burn this incense and open the way for God. This was part of the worship service. And Jesus opened the way to God. And then there was myrrh. This is a gift for one who is to die. It's an embalming type of, 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 of substance. And Jesus was born, we know, in order to die for our sins. Now how Jesus getting gifts somehow progressed into we all got to get gifts is an interesting story, isn't it? It was Jesus' birthday. He was the king. He was the Messiah. He was the one that was supposed to get gifts. But now we're all supposed to get gifts. And that's an interesting story that winds through a lot of different cultures and a lot of different traditions. And y'all have probably read some of those. I'm reading a very interesting book about that right now. And all different countries have a different slant on Jesus, on St. Nicholas and all of that. And how it all comes about in their culture and how they give gifts. But Matthew tells us that in having been, warned, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi went back to their own countries in a different route. So they heard what Herod said, but this was even more confirmation for the Magi that this was the Son of God. This was the Messiah because we all got the same dream and told us not to go back. And we also read a little bit later in this same a chapter that Joseph is warned in a dream not to go back because we know that Herod eventually is so enraged that he has all the babies in that vicinity, baby boys, to be killed. It's hard to believe that somebody's that much of a tyrant, but that's what happened. But Mary and Joseph are warned and they flee to Egypt and they stay there for several, we don't know exactly, it probably was a few years. So if you really look like on the surface of this plan of Jesus and the Messiah, the Savior coming into the world, it looks like, why would you pick this time, God? This does not seem like a good time to bring Jesus into the world. Israel's under Rome's thumb. You picked a young couple who have very little, if any, influence in the world. Herod is a paranoid ruler who does not hesitate to kill anybody who poses a threat. And spreading the news of the Savior via shepherds doesn't seem like a really good PR plan. The religious establishment is unaware of the coming of Jesus, even though they've been told through the scriptures and the prophecies, and even though they've been told by these magi who have come from the east. And all of this makes it look as though the timing of Jesus' arrival is very poorly planned. But then again, we read in scripture constantly, God's ways are not our ways. The way God thinks is not the way we think. He does things very differently. And Paul would write many years later to the Jesus followers in Galatia, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Again, I'll read that. The set time had fully come. And only God knows when that set time had fully come. God's timing and plans have always befuddled us as humans, haven't they? We always think, well, you should have done it this time. Why would you do it that way? But then when we see it all come together, we know that God is working throughout history. And he's made a way back by his way and his plans, a way back for us to be restored. I want to read this as an illustration. There was a debate several years ago with the atheist who's now deceased named Christopher Hitchens. And The guy debating him was named William Lane Craig, who is still alive. And he noted how Christ's arrival on earth occurred 
at the perfect time. And we go, what do you mean the perfect time? Well, he says this, human beings have existed for thousands of years on this planet before Christ's coming. But what's really crucial here is not the time involved, rather it's the population of the world. The Population Reference Bureau estimates that the number of people who have ever lived on this planet is about 105 billion people. Only 2% of them were born prior to the coming of Christ. Think about that for a minute. Only 2% of the world was born before the coming of Christ. Since then, the rest of the 98% of the world has been born. Is that not fascinating? He goes on. He says, Eric Kreps of the Survey Research Center of the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research says, God's timing couldn't have been more perfect. Christ showed up just before the exponential explosion of the world's population. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent, God sent forth his son, and when Christ came, the nation of Israel had been prepared. The Roman peace dominated the Mediterranean world. It was an age of literacy and learning. The stage was set for the advent of God's son into the world. And I think in God's providential plan for human history, we see the wisdom of God in orchestrating the development of human life and then bringing Christ into the world in the fullness of time. That's pretty fascinating, isn't it? And what I find fascinating about that is we go, well, yeah, that's how God works. He knows. But then we, centuries later, do these research things like these guys in this article. And they research all this stuff, and it all points back to what? God knew what he was doing. God always knows what he's doing. We may just now be figuring that out. It's like your parents tell you something when you're little and you think they're idiots. And then all of a sudden later you go, wow, mom and dad were pretty smart. They did know what they were talking about. And so God does. So I find that pretty fascinating as we move forward in history when archaeology tells us things, modern technology tells us things, but it all points that God's plan and timing, in fact, were at just the right time. Remember at the start of the sermon I asked, did anybody get a present for Christmas? And somebody said, you can't use it for 30 years. You probably may have kind of figured out where I was going with that. For Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the magis who truly believed that night when he was born that he was the Messiah, they would have to wait some 30 years before Jesus would really start his, what we would understand as his public ministry, right? You ever wondered that? Why did Jesus wait so long to start his public ministry? Because we, we don't really see anything in Scripture except Matthew and Luke tell us a little bit about his birth. John and Mark both just go right into his ministry. But we do know that Luke tells us a little more about Jesus at age 12. Remember when they lost Jesus and he was with the, the priest and they were fascinated by this 12-year-old who knows this much about God. But how do we know ministry wasn't done before 30 years old? I can't imagine that Jesus didn't do any kind of ministry till he was 30 years old. We just don't have it recorded, right? But it's fascinating to know that what Jesus would have done as far as ministry, the people's lives that he touched as a carpenter till he was 30 years old. But while this waiting, this morning on Christmas Day of all days, maybe there are some questions that we should be asking ourselves about waiting. Maybe why are we waiting to start using the gifts that God has blessed us with for years? Why have we waited to use those gifts for him. Some of us have had those kind of gifts for years, but have still failed to use those gifts specifically for God and his kingdom. Sometimes we can be like Herod, so consumed with our power, our status in life. Now, you may say, well, don't compare me to some tyrant king who would kill babies. 
But I do think as we look at our culture and our life that sometimes we are so consumed with where we are that we fail to recognize Jesus and his arrival and that that requires something of us. Will we be faithful as we move on from Christmas Day as Mary and Joseph were? They had to continue to be faithful Every time God says something, they had to be ready to move. And as we see in Mary and Joseph, they always did that. You, you know they had questions. They know, you know they wondered why we have to do this, but they faithfully obeyed that. Do we move forward recognizing God's plans that include the redemption of not just us and our family or us in the United States, but everybody worldwide? Do you realize after reading and reflecting on the coming of Jesus as a baby again this year, that God's plan can and does use everyone in his plans, regardless of how the world looks at them. Paul would say later to the Corinthians this, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. You know, Mary and Joseph couldn't escape Jesus, could they? I mean, he was their child. You couldn't get away from him. He grew up, though, and the shepherds always wondered, did they ever see Jesus again? Did they ever have another encounter with Jesus? I also wondered about the Magi. Would they ever encounter Jesus again? Did they keep up with what happened with this little baby because he would grow up? And nothing seemed to really be of news until he was 30. So how did they, how did they follow Jesus? But how could they have not lived differently after their experiences? The shepherds, the Magi, Mary and Joseph. Even when they were waiting for Jesus to do something they thought he should do as Messiah, I'm sure there were times where Mary and Joseph, they, when are you going to start, Jesus? What are you waiting on? We know who you are. Why are you waiting? Why don't you fix that? Why don't you heal that person? Why don't you do this? But Jesus knew that he was here to do his Father's work, and there was a timing about that. The pre- at the present we have on Christmas Day and any day is the presence of Jesus with us. He's always, he's everywhere with us. And we too live in a world where there are evil dictators, aren't there? There's Herods out there today. And there are those who would reject Jesus, even maybe some among us today. And we are again waiting. And there are times when we wish the Messiah would act sooner, don't we? Why don't you fix that problem? Why don't you take that dictator out? Why don't you elect that leader? Why don't you elect a good leader? Why don't you do something about it? You're the Messiah, God. So again, we're waiting, and there's times we wish that he would act sooner or differently. But we must be like Mary and Joseph and the Magi and the shepherds, and we have to wait patiently, and we trust and walk with him until he chooses to reveal the fullness of that plan. Until he comes again, we are supposed to be doing our Father's will, like Jesus did. So are we willing to do that? Next week, when kind of the, the flash or the, the glitter of Christmas has faded, in a month from now, six months from now, are we still going to be following Jesus? Or are we going to get bored because He's not doing what we want Him to do in our lives or in the world? But true followers of Jesus follow Jesus and recognize that fullness of time will always come, and we need to be ready for it because Jesus is coming again. 
He is coming again. We need Him to come again. But until then, we need to be ready in doing what He's called us to do and being who He's called us to be. Well, this morning, we're going to offer an invitation. Maybe there's somebody here today who on Christmas Day needs to name Jesus as their Lord and Savior and surrender your life to Him. And it's a journey. And it's not a perfect, wonderful journey that never has any bad things happen, but it's a journey of faith. And so if you need to do that today, our praise band is coming up and they're going to lead us in a song as we go into a communion time. And we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. Um, But if you do have a decision, I'll be right here to try to walk you through that. So let's stand and sing with them as we prepare our hearts for communion.